Growth and innovation. Two words that best describe the ETF industry. However, rapid growth and innovation creates a critical need for financial advisors and industry practitioners, education. Enter the ETF Institute, the first and only independent organization providing industry professionals and financial advisors with certification, education, and training on ETFs. Learn more about the Certified ETF Advisor designation by visiting CETF.org. Equities are the building blocks of any successful portfolio. From satellite exposure to core allocations, advisors must understand the best way to wield equities if they want to succeed. Join Vetify on March 13th for the Equities Symposium and hear from industry experts and thought leaders. Register at ETFtrends.com. That's ETFtrends.com. ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racing president of investment advisory firm, The ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. Some guests appearing on this program may also be financial sponsors of ETF Prime. The ETF Store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF Store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me live from exchange, the ETF event of the year held down here in Miami, Florida, are three of the very best in the ETF business. I am joined by Eric Balchunas, Senior ETF Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, Cynthia Murphy, Head of Research at ETF Think Tank, which is under Title Financial Group, and the one and only Todd Rosenbluth, Head of Research at uh, Vetify. How is everyone feeling this uh, Tuesday afternoon, which is technically day three of the uh, conference? Yeah, well, you got to sit in the seat closest to his eye contact to be the one and only, apparently. But first of all, I want to thank you and thank the audience for being here at Exchange. Vetify is the host of this conference. Just if I can give you a couple of quick stats for the audience that's not here. There's over 1,800 people on site for this conference. We have more advisors than we had last year. We have over 100 industry partners. There's a huge buzz that's going on throughout the overall conference, and I'm so glad that my friends got to spend this weekend and, and last couple of days with me. Well, I think we uh, all agreed that we're going to go completely off the cuff here. Uh, seriously, for everyone listening, uh, there was no prep call, there was no planning, you're going to get us completely unfiltered, though I will say I do have a few hot topics, some of which you can probably guess that I want to make sure we uh, touch on. But let's first talk about exchange itself, the conference itself, and then we'll go rapid fire through some of these other uh, questions. What I'd like to hear from each of you is just give me your headline from the event. If you had to summarize everything that you've seen, 
so far, something that would really capture the vibe of the conference and put it into a headline, how would you do that? And Eric, I'll start with you. Um, the Live nightclub is no joke. Um, yeah, no, I, first of all, that was a great party the first night. I had been here three years, never went into the club. That is a great club. Um, and I love everybody got kicked out because it was a rapper's birthday. Um, but yeah, no, this is a great place. Uh, I think this year feels like, again, a more maturation uh, of the industry. You look around and basically, I don't think there's anybody that's a Wall Street or buy side firm that isn't here in some shape or form. I've been coming 12 years and you know, um, it was like, oh, this is the year Fidelity's coming finally. And then this is the year, you know, now we got federated. So it just feels very mature and the market's up. So everybody's in a pretty good mood um, and everybody's, you know, flows are great. So uh, the vibe to me is really uh, nice, light, you know, obviously some topics are uh, getting more headlines than others, but um, I just continue to see the maturation of the industry. It's kind of gone mainstream. Cynthia, how would you characterize the event? Yeah, it's, uh, it's surprising to me that this year feels intimate. It's the best word I can think of. It's 1,800 people, but it feels like the conversations are very almost one-on-one. -on -one. It feels like they're deeper. It's less hype and, and more depth, to, to Eric's point. So it feels intimate, and, and I will make the point that it's amazing how at least 50% of the folks feel new to me. It's like we've been coming to this for a lot of years, but it's constant new faces, so a lot of signs of growth in the business. Yeah, uh, well, I just piggyback off of that. This, our goal with this conference was to have it become a community within the financial services industry, so a lot of the content has been geared towards financial advisors, multi-generational practices, how to be a better leader. Some of those things are interesting to those that are in the ETF industry so they can talk to advisors. But what's equally as important, the advisors are here and asset managers want to be able to talk to advisors about their practices. But we've intentionally tried to make things more of a community. Lunch is still going on. Uh, while this is happening. So people can have time to be together, to network, to build relationships, as opposed to, I, it was a different conference under different leadership, but I remember going down and there'd be four or five different things that I was interested in going to, and there's one of me, and I couldn't make it to all those things. We, we tried to pare things down intentionally with the best of the best topics, hopefully. Yeah, I think from my standpoint, I would piggyback on what you were saying in that, to me, the headline from the event is that the ETF industry has matured. I've been coming to these events for 15 years now, and I remember the first ETF conference I attended, there was like 150 people uh, in the audience. There weren't any of the major asset managers. And you look now, we're sitting here in the exhibit hall, really neat venue. This is live disco or silent disco style uh, stage, but we're in the exhibit hall and you now have the largest asset managers involved in the ETF space. That trend has been happening for several years now, but to me, it's just front and center. The, I, I always like the entrepreneurial spirit of the ETF space. I still think we have that, but clearly the industry has moved to a point of maturation now. Yeah, and you know, the booths are tamer. I remember one year Quincy Jones was at a booth. One year they had, um, remember the Eat ETF? Someone was walking around with bagels, throwing them out. Like it's I, I met Tony Gwynn one year. Yeah. Which I've is just liquidity oh, maze. You remember the Terry Bradshaw yes. uh, lunch presentation, which is still uh, unbeaten? Yeah. Yeah, where he just went like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's definitely, again, it's a little more mainstream, mature. Uh, for better or worse, and I think, you know, uh, it makes sense because the companies that are coming into the space are bigger and bigger. 
In terms of the exhibit hall, I'm going to put each of you on the spot here. If you had to pick one standout, so just strolling around here, one standout, something that jumped out at you, who, who would you pick, Todd? So I posted about this, uh, and I actually got some relatively good engagement. Uh, Vanguard has been sponsoring the coffee bar, uh, but they did it in a really creative way. There's You order based on certain tickers. So uh, I think I'm VUSB because I'm a tea drinker, uh, but VWOB. B, which is an emerging market bond ETF, is a latte, which I heard was the most popular choice. I think you chose something different. But look, how great it is you're getting ETF people to, and others to say your ticker out loud. It's going to stick in your brain, and maybe you're going to buy a bond ETF. I went uh, VGLT, which was the Americano. It was, it was very good. Uh, Cynthia, who stood out to you in the exhibit? Um, I guess I have to say grayscale. Uh, it's, I mean, it's... Pro. It's beautiful. It's slick. It's very on brand for Bitcoin and the future. The T-shirts are super clever. Um, and but I was also a huge fan of the Stretch Armstrong Federated Hermes is giving away. I love those silly toys. So I got a couple. They're in my bag. So congrats on that one. And for listeners, I have to paint the picture a little bit. So again, we're sitting on this stage and we can see Grayscale's booth straight ahead. You you really can't miss it. It probably is the most prominent uh, exhibit here. So I, I can see why you chose that one. Eric? She kind of stole my thunder, Cynthia. Thanks a lot. Uh, no, um, Grayscale, I'm looking right at it. You know, it was the first thing that I really draw my attention when I walked in. Also, that shirt, um, you know, I made the custom shirt. I made two only, just one for you and me. That's right. Because we were that obsessed, with, you know, even three years ago. And then they riffed off of that. You don't even need to know the backstory to appreciate that T-shirt for sure. Um, and I got I got one on stage earlier in the panel, so I got to give them probably the best booth. And I'm also with you, the Stretch Armstrong doll. Even though they uh, Mattel wouldn't let them put the ticker on the name of the doll, uh, if you have kids, you know you come home, you got to or walk not. Here. The key is to get a bag because there's a lot of bags. You get a bag, come back in here at like 4:30. And just be Santa Claus, you know. But the Stretch Armstrong is probably going to be one of the bigger hits at home. So I would say if you can, you know, a swag that is kid-friendly usually. Oh, and um, Simplify has a wooden pay, uh, airplanes that you put together. Those two things should last at least seven, eight minutes when I get home. <laughs> um, but, hey, that's a good seven, eight minutes. Uh, and at least my didn't come home empty-handed. On the uh, grayscale swag, I know you said you weren't going to give the backstory. I have to quickly give the backstory on that. So I think a lot of people know, Eric and I have been tracking the spot Bitcoin ETF uh, drama saga for, for what, 10 years now? You longer than me. But anytime we would see a new product launch, a triple leveraged, you know, inverse oil ETN, we would tweet that out and say, still no spot Bitcoin ETF. So about two years ago, we were at an event like this. It might have been this event. And Eric shows up and he has a t-shirt for me that said, still no spot Bitcoin ETF. So that's posted out on Twitter uh, for, for posterity. And so Grayscale riffed off of that. Of course, Grayscale put forth a lot of effort, sued the AC, uh, SEC, finally got these things to market. So they, they're out of them, by the way. They don't have any more of these shirts left, but they had the, uh, the still and still no spot Bitcoin ETF, but that was crossed On the out. front, on, on the, the front. back. On the back was a disclosure. Yeah, it's a, a lot of words. It's a lot of words on the page. By the way, page. I was going to get another one made that if, um, 
because let's say the, the approval, this conference happened between BlackRock's filing and the approval. You know, I was going to get another one made that, that said, what does BlackRock know? That was the new <laughs> phrase, because it was like, we were, why do they file? What do they know? Who did Larry call? That was the whole... You should go into the, uh, the ETF t-shirt business. Well, you have a lot of ideas. You could open up a shop and yeah, I think I sell might, a lot I of might. these things. Yeah. You guys need an intervention. That's what you need. <laughs> we definitely need an intervention. All right. So here's what I want to do with our remaining time. I have a boatload of topics that I want to run through. I don't know if we'll have time to get to all of these, but I think these are all topics that are front of mind for everybody here and, and listeners of the ETF Prime podcast. And the way I'm going to do this, I'm going to bring up the topic. Feel free to comment, jump in. If you have no comment, that's great. We'll just go around the table and, and see where we're at. Um, this isn't going to be a spot Bitcoin ETF podcast, but I have to start there. I have to stay on brand. So I do want to start with that topic. And, and the way that I'll set this up, we're now about a month since these things have gone live. In my estimation, uh, spot Bitcoin ETFs have been the most successful launch in ETF history. I think if you look at assets, you look at trading volume, to me that's pretty clear. But there are some unique dynamics here in that we had an incumbent, I'm going to call them an incumbent in Grayscale and GBTC, uh, who had significant assets coming to the party. They uplisted GBTC, it's now an ETF. They're at a much higher price point than the competitors. So they're at one and a half percent expense ratio. The lowest cost spot Bitcoin ETF is now at what, 19 basis points. Most of uh, the, the other competitors are somewhere between 20 and 30 basis points. I would just like to hear from each of you, I, I guess, A, your impression on this first month, and then B, how do you see this playing out longer term in terms of the competitive dynamics? And, and Cynthia, I'll start with you on this. So first, I expected everybody to be here wearing Bitcoin t-shirts. So I, I'm thinking, you know, I'm kind of glad that uh, we are being grown-ups a little bit about that and relaxing a little bit. It's been a little crazy. Uh, but uh, what I think is exciting now, and, and we've all talked about this a lot, is what's the next phase of it. And, you know, I was just talking earlier to the folks at Galaxy and, and just the concept of, you know, we're talking about creating, redeeming, who's doing it best, who's doing it tightest. So, and you guys covered that like nobody's business. But um, just the idea of the arrival was incredible, history-making moment for the ETF industry. Now what happens next is how do they stack up in terms of experience, investor results, and I think that's yet to be seen. And then what the next evolution of you know product development looks like. So which on, on the white label side, we're actually being surprising to see how many calls we're getting of people trying to get in. Now a spot is out there. So what does the next iteration looks like? It's like phones off the hook. So it's like, we can't wait to see where this goes next. Todd? I mean, it's still early days. It's not approved. Most of these products are not available on most of the platforms that people in the room here have. Don't we get me started on that, by no, the way. No, and, and, and I, I agree. I'll agree with the concept. This is not something you need to learn the history of. We have the history of it. So I don't think it needs to go through that same thing, and it might not need to go through that same thing at some point. Uh, the thing being waiting six months or a year for ETFs to be available. But we at Vetify surveyed advisors. In fact, we held a virtual symposium Eric was a part of the day after uh, the product's launch. And we, what was really positive to us is how many people hadn't had exposure to Bitcoin or crypto beforehand who were coming, I mean, this is self-selecting, but they came to learn about these products 
volunteered in answers of questions that their goal was to build up a low single-digit percentage of their average client portfolio into that once they better got to know these products, better got to understand how crypto could fit into the portfolio. So I think we're still very much in the education stage, and yet we've got billion-dollar products or $500 million products or $100 million products from, I don't know the latest numbers, I'm confident you know them off the top of your head, uh, but there's probably, I think there's six of them that already crossed the $100 million mark, uh, if my memory's right, not counting GBTC. That's success no matter what. Eric, you have covered this story closer than anyone out there, so talk to me. What do you think about these first four or five weeks of trading, and then what do you think happens moving forward? Yeah, I think we expected day one and two to be pretty hyped up. The competition of 11 people launching at once was going to get everybody on the phone with their friends and family, their client base, their distribution networks. So I expected a lot of hustle, and we saw that. Then GBTC outflows were a bit of a variable. It's like, well, how much of the new volume is coming from GBTC outflows? So after a week or two, that kind of shaked out. GBTC outflows have stabilized. What impressed me the most the last three days, the last three business days, the net number is half a billion a day. That is big. So the total net went from like 1.5 billion to three in a heartbeat. That, you, that strength, it's almost like non-normal strength for a new launch that's hype. Normally it, it, you get a lot of bang, then you fizzle out a little bit, and then long-term you start to come back up. But to have like that immediate second win strength is really a positive factor because that's not GBTC related. And the other thing that imp impressed me was what Todd said, which was the middle class. Um, every single one of these ETFs uh, has got assets that are profitable except for one. But I think they're all going to be around. The Bitcoin haters who just hate Bitcoin ETFs because they're related to Bitcoin, their whole thing was... They're never going to approve them. Okay, wrong. Then it's like, well, I don't really see the, the demand here. There's not going to be assets. Wrong. The next one was, uh, how many of these nine will actually survive till next year? Um, how about all of them? Wisdom Tree is the low, lowest one, but I know them. They're committed to the space. They can subsidize that product a little bit. So in a year, we're going to see all nine completely there. And they'll probably all have over 100 million. And that's amazing. I mean, it's just, look, you know, to launch a new ETF, to get... 50 million, 100 million in the first month, it's a home run. Most of them have- To get it in a year. To get it in a year is a, whole, is a success story. Yeah, I mean, most of these ETFs live in like, like oblivion. It's really hard. So we thought some of them might be, you know, just not get it going, but I think we'll have all nine. I think some stuff will get thrown at the wall that actually comes and goes pretty quickly. But I think the, the nine plus GBTC, the 10, we're gonna see them in a year uh, and moving forward. What do you think uh, Grayscale does with GBTC's fee? And again, we're looking at the Grayscale, uh, Grayscale booth. I think their comms person is listening in on this podcast, but they're, they're at 1.5%. You know that in the ETF Terradome, it's really tough to compete at a price level like that. Uh, that that's, that's way higher. You can look at any asset class. So, it, so how do they reconcile that? In their defense, so, okay, it's high. Uh, I mean, I don't know how, there's no way to cut that. It's high relative, right? It's actually cheap relative to other things, right? If you go to Canada or Europe, all of them are over 1%, a lot over 2%. Um, that's how potent and powerful a liquid 25, 20 basis point spot Bitcoin ETF in the U.S. is. It's going to steal market share from everyone. That's, that's, these things are very powerful. 
Grayscale is going to have to deal with that. And I think they have liquidity, they have options, they have people who got in early. So to leave the fund, the tax hit would be so bad that you actually better just pay in the fee. So I think they're going to be able to have that. They remind me of a mutual fund in a way sometimes. So, you know, active mutual funds are not going anywhere. You know, they had a lot of uh, assets they built up over the years, and that doesn't go away overnight. And so I think there's some similarities here where there will be some investors who come in new, probably going to go to the cheaper products, I would guess, but they're not going to lose all of theirs. That would be my take on that. And they could make a pitch to European or Canadian investors that, hey, we're cheaper. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think one thing that we do need to state, which I know you mentioned on your panel earlier, is we need to be appreciative of the fact that Grayscale did pave the regulatory path for spot Bitcoin ETFs, because without their efforts in, in suing the SEC, these things probably don't come to market. Yeah, they fought the law and won. They proved that song wrong. <laughs> I fought the law many times and lost every time. So uh, for them to do that, I, I think it's great. I gave him a hat tip in the panel earlier, and uh, congrats to them. They're why we're here. So totally deserve that credit. All right, we'll move on from crypto ETFs, but one Ooh. last one last oh, question. Not yet. One last question. Oh, oh come spot on. ether oh, okay. ETFs. Um, yeah. So we have a, a final deadline coming up in May. I'm not going to cover this near as closely as I did with spot Bitcoin ETFs, just because I'm out of energy. But uh, do, do we want to handicap what the odds look like? I want to handicap the odds of whether or not you're going to talk about this every show for the next <laughs> till the end of an end of it's an end addiction. Of May. Can really? you describe the uh, what's that the uh, Sesame Street meme that you put out there? Which one was that? Where he's like, and he goes right back into the uh, pile of uh, you know. I don't remember that. You know what? I think I meme too much that it, they all run together. I, I'm sure I Awareness really is the first to step mind. to recovery. Yeah. I mean, yeah. To, to your question, we've got futures products that are out there. If the SEC wants to follow the rules that they now have had to follow based on the courts uh, related to GBTC, then it's inevitable that we have uh, spot ether ETFs. I don't think we're going to get anywhere close to the same demand uh, in that same way that we didn't get as much demand for Ether futures ETFs when relative to what we saw for Bitcoin futures ETFs. And I don't think it was clear that the writing was on the wall uh, that there would be. I just think, you know, Bitcoin is ahead of the game. Uh, again, I'm, I'm a, a crypto ignorant, I guess is probably the word I should use. Not even a native or anything like that. I'm ignorant to it. But it just seems inevitable that that'll happen. Cynthia, any quick thoughts? Um, I think I... I would guess it's more likely than unlikely that they approve. Um, you know, we have precedents now that crypto is here to stay. So maybe they just don't want to hear from us talking about this for a couple of years, driving them crazy, demand writing T-shirts. So maybe they'll just say yes and move on with their lives. I don't know. Eric, you get the final word. Are you going to cover this as closely as you did? No, yes. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I've diversified already, but I would look gold and silver. You know, silver has probably one-tenth the assets gold does, something like that in the ETF area. So probably something similar. Um, and then I think we stopped for a long time. Unless there's a huge change in the presidency and there's a new SEC commission, then I guess anything's possible. Mm -hmm. But if it's Gensler, I think they two-thirds chance they approve them by May. And if they don't, it goes up from there um, because they now they open to lawsuits. But I have a question for you, like... Um, what does your family think of your obsession with this? Do they understand? Have they tried to like? I don't think anybody understands it. Yeah, I, I've I, gotten I, more questions from like the guy next. The guy next to you Twitter. does. That's why you're seated next I to him. I, I know, and he he understands, but yes, nobody nobody gets it. 
I, I've shown up at Thanksgiving dinners and <laughs> birthday parties, and, and I get asked about it all the time. And I just, I was like, you know, I don't even want to talk about it. So I, I was uh, golfing with my like four other dad friends. We got like twice a year. And when the ProShares futures ETFs was getting approved, my phone's blowing up. I'm working with James on how to, and it's while we're in the round of golf. And so they're constantly teasing me about this. Outside of that, my wife just calls it all Twitter nonsense uh, for the most part. She, or she's like, should we get in? Like, she's always looking. I'm like, you know, no, I can't do that. But, um, she, you know, largely speaking, this is so niche. But the reason we're all obsessed, let me sell, let me explain this. The reason we lost our minds is because this is, A, ETFs only break down our new asset class once a decade. B, this is a weird asset class. It involves a whole underworld of colorful characters. And it's the, when you're, when you're dealing, you're finally dealing with actual retail investors instead of like professionals. So it's just a fascinating underworld for sure. And it's a clashing of generations, cultures, investment philosophies. So the ETFs, in my opinion, were the bridge that brought multiple worlds slamming into each other. To me, that's just one giant car crash. And that's why I couldn't take my eyes off of it and got obsessed. That said, this stuff's going to be one, two percent of total ETF assets. Um, but in fascination level, it was a 10 out of a 10. Yeah, I think the other important aspect there is that we knew the ETF structure would handle this asset class really well. And if you looked at the other products that were available on the market to average retail investors, we had products like GBTC pre-conversion that traded at massive premiums or discounts. We had Bitcoin futures products that could suffer from contango. Uh, we, there were issues with just end investors maybe not being comfortable going to a crypto exchange, or they were worried that they're going to you know get hacked or, or lose their key if they custody Bitcoin. For all of those reasons, we knew that an ETF would be an effective wrapper, and that was really my advocacy around it. I think some people misconstrued that as me thinking that Bitcoin was going to go to the moon or whatever. It wasn't that. We just knew the ETF structure would work. The last thing I'll say here. Oh. I don't think that, oh. no, I was going to say, I don't think that we will have any more fun covering a, an ETF topic than Bitcoin <laughs> ETFs moving forward. So, all right, let's move on. Do you ever ponder having an intervention? This is it. This, this is it. This is the intervention. I this didn't is, know that. This is right, it. We're, we're moving on here. We're Good. moving on here. Let's get to some other ETF minutes. topics. Um, all right, I want to talk ETF multi-share class structure. Good. So I think in visiting with asset managers over the past couple of days, this is a story that I think is going to become an enormous story the rest of the year and certainly into 2025. And just by way of background, I think most people are familiar that Vanguard ETFs are offered as a share class of their mutual funds. That offers some benefits. Some people think more so on the mutual fund side, but certainly from an asset manager side, this can be a valuable um, option because we know that a lot of mutual fund managers, traditional old guard mutual fund managers, have a lot of assets in mutual funds and retirement plans. And so an ETF share class structure would allow them to offer ETFs, but still maintain that lucrative cash cow mutual fund business. I think we're going to see, again, a tremendous amount of interest around this. I'm curious what you've heard. If you think this is going to be big, do you think the SEC is going to approve this structure? And Todd, I'll send that your way first. So I was on earlier in the year. You asked me, for, I think it was the beginning of the year, and you asked me for a prediction. Uh, and my prediction was and still is that we will have ETF share classes available of existing mutual funds by the end of 2024. He's probably going to bet me on that before this conversation ends, but we'll see about that. Um, I think it's going to happen. I think the SEC is going to pick this up. 
uh, more in the second half of the year, in part because we have just many more firms that are now trying to do so. So since I made that comment, Morgan Stanley uh, has filed to do so. Morgan Stanley is a relatively new entrant into the ETF market. They launched a year ago. I think they've got a dozen products. They're gaining scale. They have a huge mutual fund business. Dimensional funds is a $120 billion, I think, ETF presence right now, the largest overall active manager. They want to be a part of this. Fidelity wants to be a part of this. I'm confident I'm leaving out a couple other firms. I, I think it, for the reasons that you talked about, but I'll add an additional reason. If you have to think of all the people who've been with these mutual funds for years, and Eric talked about not wanting to pay taxes, and that's why people will stay with GBTC. If there's an ETF share class of these existing mutual funds, we're going to see many more advisors that are fans of Dimensional or fans of Fidelity be able to invest in these strategies in a tax-efficient manner. I think you can just convert from a mutual fund to an ETF share class, and there's no tax implication for that. I hope that's the case. That's not tax advice. Uh, if that is true, that's just tremendous. You can think about Dimensional could double in size uh, with the ability of that very quickly. Cynthia? Yeah, in truth, uh, I, I think there's a lot of details that are not clear to me yet. So um, I don't know that I have a super informed opinion other than like, how does this work for active? I mean, Vanguard has been, you know, a passive vehicle and, and the Vanguard investor is a different beast. You know, they're long term, they buy and hold, they're not trading. So how does a share class work in an active mutual fund space where there's a lot more transactions going on day to day? Uh, what does the taxes look like, capital gains, all that stuff. So it's, it feels like that's where the puck is going, so we'll probably see it. Uh, it's not, I'm just not sure how the mechanics work yet uh, because of all the demand for active. You know? So what does that look like? Yeah, and currently I believe there are six fund companies that have filed for exemptive relief for uh, an ETF share class structure. The main issue the SEC has is what they consider cross-subsidization, where if, say, you had significant outflows from a mutual fund share class, that could create negative taxable consequences for the ETF shareholders. And then same with transaction costs. If you had a lot of transaction costs on the mutual fund side, maybe that could negatively impact the ETF side. But, you know, Eric, you've, you followed all of these different ways that fund companies can bring a product to market, whether it be through mutual fund conversions, ETF or mutual fund clones, right? Bring it into an ETF strategy. What do you think about the share class structure? Yeah, the Vanguard structure worked really well because Vanguard sees nothing but inflows. These active mutual funds are, are, a lot of them are seeing outflows. And so that does change the tax sort of contagion, I think as Ben Johnson calls it. And that's real. You know, you don't want the ETF investor to get hit with random tax bills. That would defeat the whole purpose. The bigger problem, and this is something we've studied intensely, is at the end of the day, if you look at all the money that's gone into active ETFs over the past year, something like 95% of it's gone into products that charge less than 40 basis points. So the question on the ETF share class is, do they have the guts to self-cannibalize? If they don't, it, it won't matter. If they do, that ETF share class will A, see money come over from the mutual fund, and B, could even have some organic uh, interest as well. Some companies have been a, a little more aggressive with that, that, what I call guts to get cheap. Um, and I, look, I'm not, it's just the way it is. You look at the numbers. And so we have this thing called um, beta adjusted fee demarcation line. 
if you have a low tracking error and a lot of beta in your fund, um, you got to go cheaper. If you have a lot of ac high active share, you can get away with charging more. People just don't want to be charged for beta anymore because it's basically free. So as some of these legacy fund companies come over, it's tough for them to charge the I class or lower. But that's kind of what you're going to have to do. So any other class is going to be like, well, I'm out of here. So if they do that, boom, it's going to be huge for ETFs. I think the SEC will approve it. I'll tell you why. Because the bigger the names get involved, the more they're just... These are people who have employees used to work at the SEC. And some and vice versa. So revolving door once you get to the BlackRock, um, not even DFA, but like Fidelity. These are monster companies. They're big members of the ICI. And I think the more of these bigger companies get involved, the more you can say it's likely it will happen. Mm -hmm. They'll figure, where there's a will, there's a way. And I think there is. So I would say in the next uh, 12 months, it could happen. Well, the other issue there too, is I think the optics the SEC will have to deal with because Vanguard is already on the market with this structure. Granted, it is only for passive, but I just think the optics of having one of the largest asset managers in the world have access to this structure, but not allowing other issuers could be a problem. And I'm not going back down the Bitcoin ETF rabbit hole, but Let's do it. the SEC has spent some political capital and just you know some, some ca negative capital in general on that whole deal. So that'll be interesting. But Eric, in terms of the self-cannibalization, I mean, do, do fund companies even have a, an option now? If they don't embrace these structures, if they don't continue to embrace the ETF wrapper, aren't they dead in the water? Yeah, so uh, in the last book I wrote, I analyzed this a lot. I talked to Jack Bogle a couple times about, I said, what should Active do? And in his grandfatherly savage way, he's like, nothing. Uh, he's like, even if they lowered their, cut their fee in half, it wouldn't matter. And they'd kill their, all of their overhead and their operating margin. And so what's the point of that? They might as well just you know, take money on the way out. Now, I know that's harsh. I don't think it has to be like that. But if you're over a certain age and you've been in this business a long time and you're a little on the tired side, I could see just being like, let me just sell this. Let me just sell this business to somebody. They can like take the parts apart or there's some cash cow left in the mutual funds. You know, Eaton Vance sold themselves to Morgan Stanley. If you go that route, I just think you get acquired. If you want to exist in the what I call the Vanguardian future, the Terror Dome, uh, you're going to have to make some hard choices. The good news is the market keeps going up. These choices are way easier to make when your assets keep growing regardless of your outflows. So I would do it now while the times are good because in a bear market, it could get really bad because the, the bear market, bull market subsidy turns to a bear market tax. So your assets go down the market, then the outflows, and then people who are stuck in tax for tax reasons, they can finally use those losses. So I call it the triple whammy. So you have a name for everything, don't you? I pretty it's, it's by my job. I yeah. like to frame things. It's for t-shirts. Yeah, that's just another t-shirt, <laughs> by the way. Um, so yeah, it it'll it's gonna get ugly at some point. I think the better they can plan now, uh, and there they are. I think they are. I think they have the message. But a bear market is actually more of a problem for active than what we have today, which is this slow drain into cheaper passive, because the market has totally overwhelmed the outflows. Um, so they're, they're in a good position right now to make some of these tougher changes. But a lot of times you see that somebody hired from like BlackRock and they get hired into a legacy mutual fund company. And I can see it's hard for them to sell these kind of decisions up. Whereas somebody gets hired in a Wall Street firm or a firm that's very diversified, 
it's easier because there's other businesses. This isn't the whole thing riding on your mutual fund. So it also depends on the type of firm that is trying to deal. Because if mutual funds are your only business, it's just very difficult to purposely um, you know, lower your revenue stream. It's a, almost anti-business to do that. I'm going to use that as a jumping off point for another key theme that has stood out to me over the past few days, and that's active fixed income ETFs. And when I think about some of the old guard mutual fund companies getting involved in the ETF space or looking just for white space where maybe they can have some success, it is on the, the fixed income side. But if we take a step back, Vanguard now offers active fixed income ETFs, and they have a core bond ETF at 10 basis points. So how do you think that's going to play out? That I think you have these legacy mutual fund companies, they see this as a, a, an area of opportunity, but we already have Vanguard now operating at, at 10 basis points. Todd? There's, there's room for both. Uh, I think there's, there's low cost products. Vanguard is one of them, uh, but Capital Group, uh, has had success with their active fixed income ETFs. There's a couple of them that are already over a billion dollars in assets under management. They just launched two years ago. Uh, Tiro Price is having some success with fixed income as well. I'm just trying to think of the newer entrants. Uh, and I'm excited. Morgan Stanley just entered, well, they, they entered the year ago with, with active fixed income ETFs, but they have an ETF, a senior loan ETF. The ticker is EVLN. It launched on Thursday. I like we like saying things out loud, so it's Evelyn to me, uh, even though it's Eaton Vance Loan ETF. This is a franchise that's been part of... Do you the, name all the ETFs? I, I try to say them out loud instead of spelling them. I don't, people spell things out. If you can say... I, I don't go that far. Yes, you do. No, I don't. I wouldn't call that Evelyn. <laughs> I'm trying to think of an example. All right, what's the, what's the ProShares Futures ETF? Bitto. Yeah, you go. It's not, you're not, not a person's name. It's not like, a, you know, I'm naming like a dog or something. It's like, a, anyway. I'm not naming my dog Evelyn. My dog is named Coco. Which I think is also a ticker. It might be. Coco is probably a ticker. We have to stay on topic. Cynthia, I'm, oh. I'm bringing you now into this. Todd lost his privileges. Them apart. Um, active fixed income. Is this an area of opportunity in the ETF space? So uh, I will give you a little bit from the white label perspective. Um, when you think about product development, I mean, fixed income hasn't been exciting forever. All of a sudden is where the action is. Um, so on the conversations we're having for where's the opportunity for space, so 95% is active. Nobody's talking about passive anymore in terms of new product opportunity. And it is all fixed income, but it's kind of like off the beaten path fixed income. So there's flavors of fixed income. And, and we're seeing conversations like go on kind of crazy sides of credit. So, you know, can we figure out a way to do auto loans or credit cards, different kind of collateralized debt? Um, these conversations are all, and they're figuring this out. So I think fixed income is going to have a whole new era of we're not just talking your TLT, your eggs, and uh, we move on with our lives. There's going to be a lot of different flavors that are going to be coming down the pike, which, you know, to, as we always talk about, some going to stick, some not. But there's definitely a whole new generation coming, I think, in active fixed income. Eric, before we all fall asleep, bond ETFs. Any uh, any quick thoughts? <laughs> no, I mean, you guys summed it up great. I, the, the idea of putting some of the stuff that Cynthia mentioned, by the way, her perch at a white label issuer is really cool. I mean, I think you guys maybe put out 5 or 10% of the stuff you're pitched, mm -hmm. which you can imagine the stuff they're pitched then, right? Because <laughs> they, they launch anything. 
So white label issuers here at all. Um, I'd love to uh, see like what they do. Like ETF don't. Shark Tank. Yeah. So, but you could put baseball cards in an ETF and it'd probably do a good job tracking. So I'm very bullish. I also think the Bitcoin ETF approval, I'm not going to get into it. I'm just, I think the idea of putting a digital asset into an ETF also kind of sets a precedent for maybe, hey, maybe we can get maybe physical diamonds. That was one that never launched back in the day. Maybe physical uranium. Um, and the bond side, there's a lot of opportunity. Uh, most issuers you talk to are very excited about the bond side. And the bond side, in particular, active. We talked about active, passive. Bond managers have a lot, uh, have it better than stock pickers right now. Bond managers, advisors like to have their bonds active a lot. It's, there's more bonds. There's, there's like way more bonds than stocks. They're, it's a more opaque market. So I'm bullish on that space as well. And bond ETFs generally, and even active ones, were already on the low cost side. Like they were never that, it wasn't like the equity side. So I, I'm, I think active will continue to carve out a big market share there. Okay, if we move from fixed income to equities, which I think are a little more exciting, the big story that I'm picking up at the conference here is moving away from the Magnificent Seven. And I think there's some concerns just around the concentration risk there, valuations. And so the types of strategies I'm hearing there be more interest around are things like equal weight strategies or moving to small caps or mid caps. Um, looking at active management as a way to navigate around the Magnificent Seven. Uh, w what do you see as the opportunity there, Cynthia? Actually, I'm a little skeptical about that. It feels a little bit like our annual call for this is the year for emerging markets. It's almost like us telling us what's good for us, and then we just go out there and you know put all our our coins on uh, on Mag Seven. So it's I I don't know how much is actually happening or how much we are hoping will happen because it's the right thing to do. I, I was actually talking earlier to the folks around Hill and their Mag ETF, which is their Mag Seven ETF, has actually been picking up assets. Uh, recently, they're super excited about it. And I'm like, so we haven't had enough of them yet? No, we haven't. So it, it, it's kind of interesting. I mean, we have now some new products on that. Isn't there a leverage Mag 7? Uh, and now there, there's an income version. There is a, a yield max Mag 7. So we should be done. We should be wise. We should diversify. It's concentrated. It's overvalued. This is the year of international, 35% discount, all that good stuff we know. I just... Um, I think we liked some crazy stocks sometimes. We can't get enough of them. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure that we're done with them. You don't yeah, I'm always that. skeptical when there's a call to move away from something that's been working, and especially in passive vehicles, because if you've been invested in, say, the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ 100, you've received all of the benefits of this over the past however many years, decade plus. And so I think that, that gets lost. Are you really going to try to call a top here and move away from that? Uh, that's not what you want to do as a passive investor. But I can see why ETF issuers are trying to use that as a hook or a marketing angle for some of the other products. Eric, any thoughts? Just on the, the Mag Magnificent Seven, um, one thing that Sam Rowe tweeted out, which I just, I never thought about it this way, was if you look at each of Magnificent Seven stock, you take like, uh, I don't know, Google, right? They own YouTube. YouTube could easily be like a large cap company. So if you actually look inside these, these stocks, there's like four or five other big stocks. So it's more like the Magnificent 50. If you really look at companies that could be spun off and be their own stocks. So is it really concentrated if you look at it that way? You could argue the government should not let these companies be that big. And those stocks, if you, if you look at your life, it's stuff you can't live without, um, honestly. So 
I'm wary, but we do have this theme this year, which is called uh, uh, QQQ methadone. Just <laughs> like stuff to we wean you off, which would be equal weighting, um, mid-cap uh, ETFs. Um, and I think equal weighting will probably be the perfect solution. There's even a NASDAQ equal weighted. And I like equal weighted. Um, but every this whole, you know, hey, this is finally the year. I agree with you. Uh, oh, no, it isn't. You know, it's supposed to be international Europe like a year and a half ago. That that lasted like six months. And then it's just like the cues just keeps rolling over everybody like a locomotive. Yeah, the thing with equal weighting that I don't think some people realize is if you look at, say, RSP, the Invesco S&P 500 equal weight ETF, if you look at the risk return profile of that, it looks like mid-cap stocks. And so you could make the case, just invest in MDY or some other mid-cap ETF, and you're getting the same type of exposure. But Todd, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this, because I do feel like you, you cover a lot of these more uh, niche ETFs. I've seen you write quite a bit about equal-weighted strategies. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, it make it just makes sense. So I, I'm shocked you don't believe that eating vegetables is possibly good for you, and you only want to just binge on on chocolate cake. That's at least the message that I heard. Let's just keep having the things that taste really good over and over again. That's just not healthy for a portfolio. So selling winners over time, either through active management makes sense, whether it's a structured approach through equal weighting. You mentioned RSP. Uh, John Davies here from Astoria. He's got ROE, which is an equally weighted quality ETF. Uh, Goldman Sachs has an equal weighted ETF, GSEW. Um, there's just other ways to do that. And of course, active management. So you could still like those stocks, but have valuation matter for some of those individual ones. Okay. Another topic I have to bring up is ESG. So here's what's interesting to me about this. If you go back three years, four years, five years, that was all you saw in the exhibit hall. That was the talk, that was the buzz. Um, I was always pretty skeptical of ESG. I know Eric, you were as well. There was a panel prior to the recording of this podcast that was on ESG, but if I'm honest, that was the first thing I've seen pertaining to ESG since I've been here. What is the future of ESG? Is it dead? Is it going to be, again, a niche area? Is this still something that has a lot of upside? What's the future here? Cynthia? Um, I, I mean, we've long talked about one of the problems of ESG is just this whole, we put all this, these subcategories into one big category, and then the greenwashing, the lack of conviction is just a marketing ploy, all these things, right? I, I think, I don't think it goes away. I mean, the whole, the concept of sustainability, the concept of, you know, impact, the carbon futures, all these things, they don't disappear. I just think we just get a little more precise with what we mean. So I think the future of ESG is actually impact. And I think we're starting to see that movement of, you know, so my dollars in this fund actually directly impact X, Y, and Z, whether it's a business, whether it's an entity, whether that's a cause. And we move away from just broad exposures that, uh, you know, some have Apple, some anti-Apple. You don't even know if what Apple has to do with ESG and you just sit there and you don't know what you're doing. I think that era is, is gone and we just actually get very precise with what we're doing. So I think we may start seeing just more niche funds, uh, you know, this is just, like, when we see success, like carbon offsets type of strategies, those, like, very specific, uh, I think that's the, the next phase here. But do you mean, like, thematic type ETFs to where somebody owns a small allocation of this, but they still own all of these companies that are, quote-unquote, 
doing the wrong things? Yeah, I mean, first of all, what is doing the wrong thing? And to, to the point of, you know, you have a, one ESG fund where oil is excluded, and then you have another ESG fund where oil is the biggest holding because that has good governance or whatever. Um, I, I think it is really like, so if you look, for example, at the the group of uh, women-focused ETFs, there's five or six of them in the market. So it's a very specific point. There are, you know, uh, non-profits, some of them. They're donating part of the management fee to specific causes. So, like, if you believe in that, or social justice, or the car carbon conversation, you know, the future of energy, I think you're just going to get the specific lanes within ESG, whether that's a thematic approach, Fair enough. I, I kind of see ESG as a thematic approach. Um, but maybe to other folks, it's more core. It, it really will depend. Todd, where do you land on this? Because as I think about our conversations over the past three, four years, you and I have gone back and forth on this on the podcast yeah. many times. I've always been more of a skeptic. I feel like you've been more of an optimist on, on the future here. Do you still feel like that? You going to take the L now? <laughs> Am I going to take the L? What do yeah, you that's mean? That's what he's saying. I, I read the subtext. I, yeah. know, I know him. Well, I don't know. I think there's still success. So money has not continued to go in, but for, there's. It, it depends upon how, you, how an investor thinks about it. Is this a core replacement because you want to have a core replacement that is perhaps doing what you want it to do from doing good for society or a cleaner approach? The performance has actually been relatively strong for some of these products that are intended to be core-like and the best of the best, but they're similar enough in strategies, which is a knock uh, for some people against these products versus others. And then the ones that Cynthia is talking about. So Crane Shares has had tremendous success uh, with their with their carbon futures-based products. That's a that's a great example of. They, people who are buying it might think that they're doing good for the world, but other people just want that diversification of an alternative investment, and this can make sense within the portfolio. So I think there's room for both. This is still a relatively small part of the ETF marketplace. It gets a lot of attention. There's a lot of negativity uh, from some people. I'm not looking at anybody in particular over here, uh, but the same way that we talk a lot about, about Bitcoin, Without it being a lot about of the portfolio, we're talking a lot about ESG without it being a lot of the portfolio. Yeah, so we were never anti-ESG. We were anti-nasty surprise. Our whole traffic light system, which I went over on Sunday, is about protecting the innocent. You don't want to go into something and be like, oh, why did I do that? The problem with ESG has always been the broad ones that try to take out the bad stocks. And the problem is they want to be your core. Because if you have a low tracking or ESG fund, what's the point of adding it on top of your S&P? Well, you got to clear everything out if you want to be ESG, right? So they're trying to dislodge cheap beta from the core. That's a big, tall order. And if they do, and like, for example, in 2021, when energy had a rally, you underperformed. I mean, even BlackRock couldn't stomach that. They sold ESG out of all their models. And if you're BlackRock and you can't stomach it, imagine if you didn't even know what you were getting into. I agree that thematic is the future because, as we say, you got to be cheap or shiny. Thematic, a lot of them, it's the shiny objects. They're the hot sauce. These are ways to complement the 60-40 core without messing with it. You know, uranium, I would argue, is an ESG play in a way. Uh, solar energy, um, the carbon credits, those will have some action. But that part of the portfolio is so small, the upside is pretty limited. But that exclusionary, hey, sell VOO or IVV, and let's put this whole ESG thing in here, uh, it's just too tough. People aren't going to 
dislodging that from the core is just too tall an order for something like that. That's also why I'm bearish direct indexing. It wasn't personal. It's just when you get three basis point beta in your core, it's just most people think that's the deal of the century. Sure. And ESG, most other things though, are trying to sell you, hey, we can outperform. And I have no problem with that, whether it's active or smart beta. ESG was trying to sell you on like being a better person. Mm -hmm. And like, you're gonna change the world. You're gonna do good and do well. The marketing was way over the top. And that's what caught my radar and why I was a little bit reactionary to it. And I think we were proven right. People didn't like that underperformed, and they saw a lot of outflows. So just real quick, I know maybe you got one more topic to get in, but since we're here at the exchange conference, you mentioned we did have a session on stage. We wanted to give advisors that cared about this the chance to hear from experts about this. The room was relatively full. It wasn't standing room only like it was for cryptocurrency strategy that, that Eric Gray led the panel on, but we wanted to give advisors the chance to hear from experts if, it was, if they were passionate about it. If you weren't interested in it, there's lots of other things to do. Yeah, I think the one thing that I would add on this topic, I'll bring more of an advisor's perspective, and as someone who is actually managing client money, we have to assume that our client base runs the full political spectrum, okay? And rightly or wrongly, I feel like ESG has been completely politicized. Again, we can get into why that's the case, or maybe we should stay away from that, but it has become politicized. That's how some people view that. And I think a golden rule for a lot of advisors is not to mix politics with portfolios. And I think that's one of the challenges for the space moving forward is that an average client may see they own an ESG ETF and they may not like that. And so you are creating some risk there as an advisor. Now, again, at the end of the day, as an advisor, you should be doing what's best for your clients. Returns are important. You mentioned the returns of some of these products have been you know, good overall, but they can't have nasty surprises, as Eric mentioned. I still, I'm pretty pessimistic on the future here. It has nothing to do with any viewpoint on society or the environment or anything like that. It's just that I think that mixing politics with portfolios is a challenge. Um, real quick on direct indexing, that was something we heard Again, over the past five years, this was going to be the big ETF killer. Uh, this was the next, what was it, the unwrapping, mm -hmm. right? What, what happened in direct indexing? Yeah, I mean, that was Matt and Dave's big thing one year. They, I, I, I think they got it wrong. And I love these guys. Their presentation was always must-see. Um, in the end, direct indexing wants to dislodge a three basis point uh, beta ETF that's one ticker. That is cheap, simple, passive. Direct indexing is exp more expensive active and complex. You're trying to turn back the hands of time. Too hard. I get why advisors want to differentiate in some high net worth, worth people like the taxation issue. So I think for it will have a very niche use case. So it's not like totally dead, but I equate it to the Segway. You know, it was supposed to revolutionize transportation and it's really used today for city tours and by mall cops. And I think that's direct indexing is going to be the look that is the segue. People thought it was going to take over. It didn't really amount to much. There are some niche cases. And um, I'm just telling you what I think. And I, th I think we're being proven right. You don't hear much about it anymore. All right. We only have a couple of minutes left here. Any parting words, words of wisdom, any thoughts on the future of the ETF industry? Are you just ready to head over to happy hour? No. We're, we're, well, there's more, for those that are in the room, there's even going to be more content Upstairs, we have Bob Pisani interviewing Jeff Gunlock. I have to MC that uh, in, a, in a few minutes. Um, 
I just want to shout out something. We've been doing uh, some support for the Susan G. Komen Foundation. I made this little game up of every picture that I take with somebody, uh, selfie, uh, and I post. I've been making a donation for $5 for every one of those. I had no idea what it was going to be. I've already taken 50 of those so far. I hope I get upstairs between here and there, but I know you guys did it with me beforehand, so I want to just thank you and, and, and shout out Susan G. Komen, who's one of the, the partners that we have at the conference. Well, and thank you for all of your efforts with this event. I've seen you running around everywhere. It's been a, a fantastic event. I've loved connecting with people in person, so thank you for, for your efforts and the Vetify teams. Yeah, no, and I appreciate it. Everybody here was on stage uh, as part of something either Sunday or other days, so I really appreciate your participation in this in this annual event. Cynthia, about 30 seconds. Any uh, final words? Uh, I can't believe we didn't talk AI, but uh, it's uh, AI is here to stay. <laughs> uh, no, I just, always a pleasure. I love being here, always learning from these guys. Um, and um, we love this business. We can't get enough. So I think we all have a little bit of an addiction problem. So it's exciting to see where all the innovation is every year. Eric, you have a minute. Uh, yeah, no, this, this event, I, I frequently call it the Comic-Con of ETFs. Um, short of people dressing up as their favorite ETF, it's the, the love and excitement here is, is really unmatched. The fact that it's three days too, you know, we do our little events at Bloomberg, but they're only like a half a day or a two hour event. But this is the best multiple, multiple day event um, that I've ever been to. This is the only one where I bring my whole team. Usually we divide and conquer for other conferences. We have four people here, two reporters. I mean, we really love this thing. Um, and I think that part of the reason it's so great is that it's sort of designed and run by people who are analysts. In the, it's the heart of the matter. It's not a corporation. And it comes across. So um, I'm happy that you've uh, you know allowed me to participate. And thanks for having me on, Nate. Well, thank you all for joining. Really enjoyed this. So I appreciate you taking the time. This was fun. That was Eric Balchunas, Senior ETF Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Cynthia Murphy, Head of Research at ETF Think Tank, which is under Title Financial Group. And Todd Rosenbluth, Head of Research at Vetify. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. Next week, I will be back in studio, and I'll be joined by Gregory Hall, head of U.S. Global Wealth Management at PIMCO. So he's going to go into quite a bit of detail on PIMCO's suite of ETFs, and he's also going to tell us exactly where financial advisors have been focusing when it comes to portfolio construction right now. So he's having those conversations firsthand with advisors, and we'll get in really an inside look at everything he's seen. Until then... Have a great week, everyone.